Well, hey guys, it feels so good to be back. <laughs> We're kicking off season two of Fork in the Road, speaking to a couple of incredibly inspiring women in the wine industry, Shalini Shaker of Neely Wine and Annie McHenry of McHenry Vineyards. Both Shalini and Annie work in the Santa Cruz Mountains region, which was hit incredibly hard by the CZU Lightning Complex fire. Thankfully, that particular fire is now contained, but Northern California's wine country continues to burn at record-breaking levels, which is becoming increasingly common. As a wine-loving, homegrown Californian, I find myself wondering, is this the new normal? How can the industry adapt and prepare for future quote-unquote catastrophic weather events? What is the impact of smoke taint on wine, and what does that even mean anyway? Shalini and Annie talked to me about these issues they're facing in the Santa Cruz Mountains and a new program that is helping with the revitalization of the area. Today, they'll talk to us about what smoke taint actually is, the importance of taking care of essential vineyard workers during harvest, and we get the 411 on their new mountain collection, whose sales go towards helping those impacted by the CZU Lightning Complex fire. But before we get to that, a hat tip to our sponsor, Jibe. We're all eating a ton of takeout these days. In fact, consumption in 2020 is up 127% over last year. And with all that comes a lot of plastic and packaging. Enter Jibe, a first-of-its-kind sustainability app that enables diners to prioritize their food delivery choices based on restaurants' use of earth-friendly packaging. Jibe also works directly with restaurants to help them source affordable, earth-friendly packaging that works for them. Visit GoJibe, that's G-O-J-Y-B-E, for more information and to download the app. And now on to our episode. First of all, ladies, I want to say thank you so much for joining. I want to start out actually by toasting you because you're both incredibly strong women in the wine industry, which is a feat in and of itself. But now we're in these incredibly challenging times. So if anyone is suited to get through it, it is you. So cheers to strength and resilience in a time. Oh my gosh, that is a trying one. Shalini, I see you've got a Modelo over there. It's harvest. I mean... Cleanser time. <laughs> it is. I feel like they always say it takes a lot of beer to make great wine. I am proving that adage to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's science, people. What are you drinking, Annie? Uh, I'm drinking at some of our wine. It's a 15 Estate Pinot. Beautiful. You know, I actually, so I'm a little bit of a fangirl. I used to work at Bonnie Dune Vineyard when I was in college. Yeah. And, and you guys were like the gold standard of Pinot Noir and just like these very elegant wines. And so I remember when I graduated, I bought myself a bottle. It's a 2004 Pinot Noir and I still have it in my parents' house because my house, I don't have air conditioning. You'll probably see me like start sweating really soon because I don't have my fans on. So I have it stored up there so that it's, you know, to stable climate essentially. And so every once in a while, I'm like, should I do it? I don't know. Oh, I'm not sure. Is it time? Would like to, is it, am I kind of teetering on like, you probably should open that? I think you could, you should probably open it soon. But I, I mean, we're still drinking wines that are older than that. And they're, they're, they're great. And, you know, we've always had really good acids. So our Pinots tend to, they just taste great for a long time, longer than one would expect, but don't hmm. hang on to it forever because we fall into that trap too. And then <laughs> drink bad wine <laughs> 10 years before and it would have been delicious. Uh, it's the worst feeling. It's like the ultimate form of being crestfallen, right? Where you're just like so excited and you're finally like, okay, I'm finally going to do this. I'm finally giving in. And then it's just like, God, oh, what did I, why did I do that? I know a lot of us, at least for me, I'm starting to open those bottles now in the pandemic. So it's like, why not? Like, what are we waiting for? <laughs> I'm holding on to nothing anymore. But yeah, you guys have been around forever. When was McHenry founded? My grandparents bought the property in Bonnie Dune in the early 60s. And they planted the first vineyard in 72 and kind of made wine on their own. 
and sold some grapes and then realized that they wanted to actually make a go of this. So the first bondage year, the first commercial year for them was 1980. And yeah, we've produced wine every year since then. Originally, the vineyard was mostly Pinot Noir, but also some Pinot Blanc and some Chardonnay. And that original vineyard died of Pierce's disease in the early 90s. And so we replanted and our new vineyard has been producing since the year 2000, and it's all Pinot Noir. It's uh, four, two and a half acres, uh, four different clones of Pinot Noir. Beautiful. Um, and my parents were the original winemakers, and my husband and I have taken over. We t- took over starting 2013. So my husband's now the primary winemaker. My love has always been the vineyard. That's that's my that's my spot. My mom was the same way, and my dad is still very much a consultant. <laughs> He heavily oversees things, but he's not, you know, doing as much of the backbreaking work of winemaking as he used to. You guys suffered some pretty significant damage. Was it in the vineyard or the winery or what What exactly, what, what did you lose and what can you keep? The winery and our cabin where we stay there burned to the ground, nothing salvageable. And also the, you know, 20 acres of redwood forest behind us. That's a, you know, what makes up our label, that tree line, that's all burned and the vineyard is heavily singed in some parts, maybe like 5% of the vines are singed, but it's, you know, it's amazing, even though initially they looked completely burned and dead, they're already putting out new growth. So I feel wonderful about that. I think we're really lucky there. A big issue that we have is that the, the uh, 20% of our vines we replanted in June and those little babies, they need water. And, you know, so they haven't been watered since before the fire. Our power just came on two days ago. So that was five weeks without any power. Even with power, we haven't been able to water because both of our wells, uh, the well heads burned. So we're kind of just hoping at this point that those little, little babies pull through. They're also really enticing to all the wildlife around that's been displaced and is starving. You know, I think our vineyard is kind of an oasis. You can tell like everything is coming in and munching at it. And those new little plants are extremely attractive, (laughs) nice and tender. But, you know, it does feel good that we can be that for the wildlife. You know, that's at least the vineyard's going to something good this year. Yeah, Um, sure. It's like it's the circle of life, right? As terrible as it is to be the the feeding grounds and and the recipient of that, it's amazing to see that firsthand. And I should also add that we just finished doing a remodel. So we had been putting off bottling. So we had two complete vintages in there that were lost in our entire library. All of our, our 1980 Pinot Noir and stuff like that um, was all, all gone to, as well. Does insurance cover something like that? How does that work out? We're insured, you know, several different policies, one for the cabin, one for the, for the winery. And within that, the, um, you know, both of those vintages are covered. The library is covered. And that's probably the easiest part of this whole process for us is that claim because it has to be so well documented. You know, I'm sure that like everyone in this fire, we're going to be somewhat underinsured, but we're not, um, we don't know about that yet. But for the actual, the wine itself is insured. It's, you know, the, the rebuilding, the physical structure and the rehabilitating the land around it, making sure that, you know, which trees need to be removed and fixing our water system. We, we, we don't know the full picture of, you know, if we're going to have enough money. Probably not. <laughs> but I think everyone in my family feels really strongly about rebuilding and, and doing this. This is such an important part of our family and it has been for so long. I think we would find a way to make it happen. 
Uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't reached that point in my thinking yet. <laughs> don't, don't go there. Just don't go there. Just think of yourself like those little vines. You know what I mean? It's just incredible to hear you say, like you can already see them sprouting back to life, you know, just literally like you just fully contained the fire yesterday and you, you will get through it. And I think that's also something so cool about being, you know, you've been there since early, late seventies, early eighties, you know, you guys have been through a lot and you're going to pull through this. I know you, I know you will. I really I have faith. I, do. I like your optimism. Oh, how is Neely faring? Well, I mean, I'm so sorry for Annie's losses. We we did much better. Um, we're we're the much northern end of the Appalachian, so we're one of the, the three most northern vineyards. And we you know we we're planted old vine Chardonnay that was um, planted in the 80s, and then we have similar aged vines actually for the Pinot Noirs. And so we sat in the smoke for quite a while, and there were days that were better, and you know it kind of was the ebb and flow of the way the wind was blowing. But ultimately, I think we did really well on Chardonnay. I suspect it's fairly resistant, at least from some of the early testing that we got. I think we also might have been okay with some of our Pinot as well. So we have some stuff that we're watching and waiting and seeing, but, you know, we, we happen to be an earlier site as well. So I think in that sense, you know, we're cooler, so we're not, you know, Santa Cruz Mountains Cabernet, but for a Pinot Noir site, we're, we're definitely on the um, earlier side of harvesting. So I think in that sense, we were, we were benefited. There's a lot we don't really know about how smoke affects things and and when we'll really know. And in a lot of ways, there's so much science and it's much better than when it, when I talk to colleagues about what the 08 Anderson Valley fires were like, or, you know, subsequently like the Sobranus fire, or even just like the Atlas fire and some other things that have happened, you know, sort of consistently since 2017 with the really regular fire seasons. Um, I think we have better data. Australia, obviously, with their bushfires, we have better data. We have we have a better sense of how to test and manage and, and sort of troubleshoot. And I don't think they have those things. I was in school, actually, when um, the 2008 um, Anderson Valley fires happened. And so having to benefit from some of those winemakers coming back down and sharing as alumni, you know, what happened to their wines and then you know, what processes they use to try to remedy them. So I think we're, we're going to benefit in that terms. Uh, I think we, we also know as winemakers to be more vigilant now. And so what will end up in the market, I think will end up being a more consistent and better product. Right. I'm curious to take a step back because this is something that's a little bit new to me as well as it is new to the industry. So for everybody who may not know, there's this thing called smoke taint, which is now becoming a somewhat regular phenomenon because of all of these fires. Can you talk a little bit about what that is exactly and how that affects the grape and then therefore the wine? So I think we probably should just qualify there's sort of smoke effect and then there's taint, right? Because if your vines are sitting out in a smoky environment and there's a lot to be said now about the freshness of that smoke. So how close that fire is and how quickly that smoke is traveling to you. So that might affect your fruit in some way, whether or not it's going to be objectionable is the second part of that question. And that's where you really get to the smoke taint question. So just because you were in smoke and just because there might be some low level effect does not actually qualify it to be tainted and the product um, not sellable. So what does that, what does it all mean? I mean, the short answer is the smoke penetrates through the skin into the pulp of the grape, and then it binds, unfortunately, to sugars, which we're, we have lots of sugar in wine grapes. And so um, sometimes you can, you know, if it's a very bad fire, if you're right next to it, you would smell it in the fruit. It is possible to smell it. If you are talking about something that's set in smoke for a shorter period of time, 
dependent on the variety. You might not smell anything at all in the fruit. You might not taste anything in the fruit. And only during fermentation, when the sugars are going away and being consumed by the yeast, that is when those compounds will free up. What we're testing for right now in California with ETS uh, laboratories is guaiacol and 4-methylguaiacol. And it's not actually an objectionable uh, compound. And many grapes like Syrah have guaiacol in them, and a lot of grapes will have some low level of it. So it is not a flaw by itself. It just corresponds to a number of other compounds that really are flaws. And of course, if you get over a certain level with guaiacol, it is a flaw. And um, I was able to get some really early numbers uh, for Neely. And then I have stuff that's just sitting out there and I won't, I won't know anything about it for two more weeks, but we tested it anyway, because I want to be able to quantify that, even though those wines are made already. Um, and if we see something that is concerning, then we'll know. Um, but we have the sensory portion of things as well. And I think people need to remember that sensory is as important. And yes, the wine can change. Wine is complex as much science as we have. And as much as it's a really wonderful tool for us to make sure we're making good, clean wines, it is not the end all be all because wine Wine is a little bit more mysterious than that. Um, but we are looking to basically um, get some baseline numbers. It's more important if you're looking for crop insurance, if you need to make a claim. If you're trying to make a decision on the wine, I think you have to consider that there are different stakeholders. Annie's family that owns a vineyard, farms it, and has a label has a very different stake than another winery who's going to come down and purchase the fruit. And even if they do that every single year, and then they have to go and pay crush fees on that, they have a really different incentive about what their tolerance is going to be um, and risk. And even when we look at what the research is saying, it's basically quantifying what the risk levels are associated with that level of guaiacol. And I think people are forgetting its risk. It's not a guarantee that you will have a problem with your wine. It's the risk associated with making a wine and then having an issue later. So for those of us who are estate vineyards, who are trying to make a decision on whether or not to pull in the fruit and to make the wine, we're more incentivized to try to make the wine and then try to evaluate it from a sensory perspective, try to get the laboratory analysis also, and then really ensure that anything that we're going to put our name on is going to meet the standard for a really awesome wine that represents that vineyard, that site, the wines that our consumers would expect. And I think, you know, to say we just won't, won't pick it because it's at a, whatever number is for low risk is maybe not the smartest decision um, in terms of what, where we are in the process, you know, because um, we're not guaranteed to have an issue just because something has a certain number does not mean it's going to have an issue. So, yeah, I think it's, I think really understanding what the stakeholders are and the pieces of the whole equation and, and the science being good science, but not the end all and be all of, um, what the outcome of the wine will be is really important to understand. That is really interesting. It's the other compounds that we're not testing for right now. And I, I do believe ETS said they're going to start offering that again in the fall. And there are people who are sending to outside labs in British Columbia. And there are apparently several new ones here in California and Australia that'll run the extended panel. And you can look at the other compounds too. I think it's just really interesting. If you look at the research, it says this is a threshold, which basically means 50% of people can smell it. 50% of people can't. And um, the 50% of people who can smell it, some of them can smell it under that level too. So that's the number that we're all sort of looking at and trying to make a decision with. But the reality is you could have maybe some of the other compounds um, these crystals that are more like the ashtray and the wet campfire and things like that. These are the ones we look at in the extended panel. And maybe you could have some of those other things there. And if they're under threshold, they may not be worrisome. But if you have a bunch of them and they're under threshold together, they might be an issue. So this is where the sensory, and this is all, this is definitely about winemaking in general. Winemaking is not 
just the chemistry and just the numbers. It's also not just my gut says do this thing. There is a beauty of this marriage of the science and the sensory and trusting trusting your instincts and your gut and what you're seeing and smelling, right? We have the tools to have these two pieces that you put together. And I think we have to approach you know, the issues of smoke in the same way, which is, is smoke influence something? Is no influence something? Is there a point when it's taint? And and we really have to make that decision. I think a lot of people, especially for Pinot Noir, we're on, we're on like a longer release cycle. If I make this wine and I bottle it a year from now, it's not going to come to a consumer for another year to two years past that. So we're going to have several chances to taste the wine as it's aging in bottle. And if anything changes at that point, it's something that would never go to the market. But as a consumer, people probably aren't really going to have to worry about it. It is not like the early fires that there wasn't an understanding of how it would change in bottle and what was going to happen. We have a better understanding through those losses and the suffering of those folks. That's really given us a lot of insight as to how we can approach trying to make the best wine we can right now, monitor it with the science and the sensory, and then get to a point where when we're going to release it, we know that at the very least for two or three years, this wine's been stable and it's not showing any issues and it's testing and the numbers aren't showing us any issues. And so we have, we know know that we can put something out there that's that's still going to be the wine that it should have been. That's so interesting. I feel like when you hear about these qualities of like smoke and campfire, like sometimes those are positive things. Those are things I've heard in tasting notes where it's like, oh, that, that's something you want to experience. It's something that pairs really well with meat. Like it's very like, I feel like a Syrah-y, like that, you know, the smoke, the barnyard, the wood, like, you know, it could even be something where it's like, if you have smaller trace levels of it and it's, you know, balanced out in some way in the winemaking process, maybe there are ways to blend to that slight percentage. If it is a smaller percentage under that 50% threshold, that it could in fact be some something maybe that's even positive or desirable or something we might even as a consumer actually really enjoy. I personally will not be that excited about it. I'm spending <laughs> like 24 hours a day, like thinking about this. Um, but in another way, it's also because of the style of wines that I tend to make. Sure. And I think that the bigger, bigger wines, fruitier wines, more oaky wines, like, yeah, maybe it'll be inter- an interesting layer. And, um, and that's not to say that it couldn't be an interesting layer in even what we're doing. But I think the point is that most of us are trying not for that to be a thing at all. Right. And right. that by the time it gets in your hands, you don't have to worry about, um, am I tasting that? Is it there? It's like, no, no, no. We've, we've already been through that process a million times over with many trained tasters to say, like, not only do we have the science that says, no, it's not there, but we're also not picking it up on a sensory level. And you can enjoy this thing without any guilt or worry or concern about having spent your money on something that wasn't worth it. <laughs> totally, totally. You know, unfortunately, this is a reality that we're going to be facing, especially in Northern California. Unless we do something drastic, it seems like this is just kind of the path we're on. So I imagine you guys both are planning for these fires becoming kind of a really, truly even more of a seasonal, extreme weather events becoming more seasonal. Are other varietals of grapes that you guys are now considering planting, knowing that this is going to be a thing? Because I know Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, they're very thin skinned grapes, perhaps more susceptible to this, you know, smoke taint. Are there things that you're considering when planting now that you wouldn't maybe have considered five or 10 years ago? I mean, we are in a sort of new phase at Neely where we are putting in some new blocks. Um, we planted Gruner Vetliner last year, 
or a few years ago, actually. So we're going to, we're going to start playing that crop in, um, this coming vintage to 2021. And, um, and actually Chardonnay is pretty resistant. It seems the testing I see, at least in our site, like this old vine Chardonnay is not having any issues. So that's sort of interesting as well. Um, and I think Santa Cruz mountain Chardonnay is it's the common theme for the hotter sites and the cooler sites. Even if you're a Cabernet producer or a Pinot producer, we're all producing pretty beautiful Chardonnay. So that's encouraging that I think one of the Santa Cruz mountain signatures is, is resistant. And I don't know, Annie, like how you feel about it. I I felt like my fire planning was very different. It was thinking about power and um, outages and generators and this year's extreme climate change, multiple heat events, lightning strikes, fires. This is like a, a, a totally out of left field. It was not on my radar. I don't know if you feel the same. It's been such a roller coaster. <clears throat> I mean, absolutely. You, you know, we aren't considering growing anything other than Pinot on our site. That's just what works for us there. But, you know, it is interesting. We went through this in 2009 with the, the Lockheed fire. Our vineyard was very heavily affected um, we had a thick blanket of smoke for over a week, um, you know, just a few weeks before harvest. And it was a, you know, a smoke tainted wine. And, and you know, back then it wasn't really, it was, it was new. So even like coming in there, things, you know, you can do, even still in the field, people are washing their grapes. Um, the way that you, you know, controlling the temperatures really carefully, the yeast that you use, you know, how long, you know, how long you're uh, fermenting on the skins, all of these things. We just did it our normal way. <laughs> And we got a wine that was, you know, way above threshold and you could, you could taste it in that fresh juice that there was something strange, but we made the wine and ultimately did our uh, reverse osmosis. And, you know, it brought the, that smoke flavor, the the sensory flavor way down, but it was still detectable. And we knew that we only poured it out of the winery. So people tasted it first. And we got, it was funny, we got this pretty loyal following for that particular vintage and people were still you know, to this, well, you know, up, up until this year, they were coming into the winery and asking if we had any more of the, the smoker left. This fire stuff in California, like it's not going away. You know, there's amazing research being done at UC Davis, especially about different treatments. And I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that those are going to really help a lot of uh, wine growers in California, winemakers in California, because it's, you know, it's here to stay. We do know that this is something that's, you know, again, going to unfortunately a part of our reality, at least for the immediate future. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about tourism uh, because wine tourism is such a huge thing. It's, you know, 15 million tourists a year and $4 billion in money come into the Sonoma County each year. And so I imagine Santa Cruz is somewhat similar, perhaps not quite as large, um, but it's such a beautiful place. And having studied there and lived there, it's just like, it's so magical and the trees are a part of it. And the wine is obviously such a huge draw. Um, do you guys... Perhaps, Annie, because, you know, I know that people are coming to you and to McHenry for that element of history. And um, Shalini, of course, for you guys, too, you're making these really cool but also innovative wines. Like, how do you see yourselves engaging with tourists and engaging that that market without actually having people physically there for the time being? The pandemic sort of set us up, quite frankly. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, Annie. I mean, but we, we started doing... Um, virtual tastings, which I mean, technology has been there. Why none of us have really been engaged in that is sort of an interesting question, but that pivot happened this spring, you know, where we had to take wine club events to an online or release into an online format. Um, 
And it's harder for sure um, to execute and keep them interesting. But I think people are, people are still looking to connect and they're still looking for that experience and they're still looking to have the same experience they have in a winery, but at their, in their home. And so we're, I think we're trying to deliver the virtual. I think that's going to carry through with fire seasons. You know, I think this tool is now open to us because of one issue and, um, and if we're going to have to suffer the other issue as long-term climate change is with us, then I think that's one tool. How we're going to continue to engage and keep interest and keep those events exciting, um, I think is a different question. And But I do think that's been one fun thing for me in the off-season was engaging with customers because I don't often get to do it, you know, in the cell, unless I'm in the cellar for, you know, just a bigger event. So it was nice to actually have some moments where I was talking to, you know, our club members and, and kind of sharing wines in a more intimate setting. So I think that that's one tool that we have. I'm curious too, something I've just, you know, been thinking a lot about friend of mine is our essential workers, specifically essential, you know, vineyard workers were here and this all happened at the worst possible time, which was at the start of harvest. And um, were your teams harvesting during the fires? Uh, and how can we, you know, as consumers be asking the right questions? How can we keep the, the harvest workers protected? Part of the pandemic, uh, normalcy was mask wearing. And so we already had N95s and had a plan about that for our um, workers in the field. In another way, you know, we we decided to use our permanent crew and and their family because folks need work. Um, and it's also the same household. And so that limits, limited a lot of the interaction with multiple people because of COVID. And so, yeah, there were just, there were these things that we had decided to do because of one issue that ended up working out for the other issue. Um, there were days that after that first pick were, the smoke was a lot and, you know, we had done it, we had done another pick, but we had, we always have other things to do in the vineyard. You know, you're preparing, maintaining other fruit um, and getting ready for other picks. And there's things that we need done, but we would just say, look, no, you've been out, you've been out here for four hours in an N95 and it's smoky. You need to go home now. And so we would send people home to rest rather than continue the other work that needed to get done in the vineyard. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't operate a regular day. Right. So it's just, I think it was trying to maintain, um, just the consciousness that people will always come first before grapes. I mean, I, I firmly believe that Anilis believe that, you know, we have to protect each other. And I think COVID's really brought that out and the fires ended up being a second element to that. But just in terms of, you know, making sure we had masks even for everybody, for every one of the picks and, um, and water and breaks and sending people home early, if that's what really was the thing to do just to, okay, we have to pick the fruit. It is safe to work with a mask on, but you shouldn't be out here any longer than it takes to do that one task and, and trying to do it that way. You know, I don't know how else we, how do we keep going with this? I mean, I, I think if the fires had been like right next to us, if the AQI had been 400, there's no way we would have picked we just wouldn't have, you know, that's not, that's not the, that's not the right call. And that's, it's, that's on us. Uh, it's incumbent on us to decide that's how we protect each other. There's no reason that we're going to bring in fruit and sacrifice anybody's health and long-term health in this process. So yeah, I think, I mean, I think we've been thinking a lot about that with the pandemic, you know, how do, how do we continue, you know, as a winemaker where I'm an essential worker, it sounds ridiculous, but we're, you know, we're, we're agricultural workers. And so how do we protect each other? How do we, how do we do this thing? Cause the wine doesn't care, you know, the grapes don't care that there's a pandemic. And so we've been thinking a lot about safety, different kind of safety, but I think that helped us already be in a mindset to really make good decisions surrounding harvest this year. Um, and I think that's the way we're going to have to continue to operate because there are going to be times where the fires are closer. 
and you're just going to have to make that call that no, you know, this is, this is, we, we we're never going to choose fruit over people. Never. Yeah. <laughs> the angels agree. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think that's an interesting point really. Um, and I think as a consumer, maybe it's a question that we start asking are your people who are picking, are they permanent workers? I think that's something there, there are vineyards that do it. You're doing it. Um, I'm Annie, I'm not sure if that's a part of your uh, plan as well, but it's, it's not certainly not the norm. I would say, I think it falls outside the norm, but I think that does not just protect the families, but also allows the children to continue to go to school, um, give some sense of ownership over the vineyard um, and over the product itself. And so I think that that's maybe something we should be asking. Like when you walk into a tasting room, like, Hey, like, who's harvesting <laughs> and how do you treat them? You know, just like you would ask about the grape itself and like wax on for that for 30 minutes. Maybe think about the people who are picking your grapes. It's equally as important. I would argue more so important, but you know, I'm a little bit of a Santa Cruz hippie. What can I say? So yeah, I think that that's something we should all really just be aware of, especially in this time and place where people are literally putting their lives on the line to go out there and, and pick grapes on a freaking fire line. Any, what are your thoughts on that? Anything you, you would want to add? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've always thought about. Uh, you know, we're so small, we do almost all of the labor ourselves, but we do bring in crews for harvest, which didn't happen this year. But, you know, I know that, you know, they're all they're all essential workers, right? And it's, it's not just in winemaking, it's all of the agricultural uh, workers are out in the fields through all of this, whether or not it's safe and you know, I mean, you drive through the, you know, fields in Watsonville and most of those workers don't have masks. I, you know, I don't know the specifics of the situations, but I feel like it's absolutely, uh, you know, a responsibility of every consumer in our country to be making sure. And like you're saying, to ask these questions about like, you know, how are these workers being treated? Do they have what they need? If they're going to be out when the AQI is 200 something, they need a 95s and they need fresh ones all the time. And, um, I think it should, that should, this should be something that people are talking about all the time. You know, how is this stuff getting to our tables? And it is interesting to me specifically with wine, like we kind of have thought about, I think the organics movement really focused on like fruits and vegetables and produce. And we kind of forget that wine is an agricultural product as well. And I, I, I do think that some of the images coming out of Northern California really brought that home to a lot of people, like seeing people harvesting with headlamps on at four o'clock in the morning with that fire line right there. I think that is, it puts things into perspective, right? It's, it's just weird. There's something about wine. It's, it's that romanticized, you know, that, that sort of a, it's a very ethereal idea. And we think a lot of times I think consumers think of the winemaker and we do think of the vineyard, but we don't often think of the people in the vineyard picking the actual grapes. And it's such hard work. I mean, I'm sure you guys have both, obviously, Annie, you're harvesting, you know, I've worked a harvest in Australia and it's fucking hot and it just is fun and you do it for a couple of days, but it sucks. Like it's really, it sucks. And then the pruning and like, it's just agonizing this work and it's so tiring. And I can't even imagine doing that with a freaking mask on. Like it's hard enough running with the mask on, you know, and then add in the fire component. Like I just, I think that vineyard workers who are harvesting right now, like they deserve all of our love. I'd also say, you know, for a silver lining for us in all of this is, you know, we've always been close. My family's always been close to the Santa Cruz mountain wine growers, you know, since the beginning, they were, you know, everyone's an open book. There were no secrets. Everyone helped everyone. You know, my dad apprenticed under, you know, David Bruce and Algren's and people back then. And, you know, I find that with this, the fires, especially 
you know, people in the community who are dealing with their own horror, you know, really stressful harvest conditions and personal problems, taking in evacuees, all of these things, everyone is still so willing to help. Um, you know, people have been offering us their winemaking facilities. Um, you know, actually, uh, John Benedetti at Santer Congeli is, he's um, going to make some wine for us this year from a, from a vineyard in uh, Corlitas. So, you know, we'll have something to sell for 2020. But just that spirit of like camaraderie and community, I think, is so important in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I, you know, that's something that I really have come to appreciate in the last month or so. It really is um, and, the most magical place. It, I miss it so, so much. And that you, it's very rare, I think, to find that. The wine community is always really lovely, but, you know, it's just, it's different. There's something very magical about Santa Cruz. I don't know what to say about it. it, it it's just very special. Um, so all those things you're saying, I'm like, oh, I can see that happening there. You know, we've been looking around for some grapes to buy and it's a, a lot of vineyards in the Appalachian are really going to have minimal to no... Um, effects from the smoke. Um, so, you know, everyone's talking about the extent of the damage and this huge crisis, but uh, there's going to be a lot of really good fruit and a lot of excellent wine made. So I don't want people to feel down on the Santa Cruz mountains this year, like at all, there's going to be some wonderful stuff coming out and, you know, people are coming together and working hard to make that happen. Like um, Shalini, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to that. I think we all need to be reminded of that as we're going out and buying Santa Cruz wines. Like if nothing else, in fact, 2020 should be the vintage that you should be buying because this is something that people worked so hard. People lost their homes. People lost their wineries. People lost their vineyards. All those vineyard workers that were out there busting their tails on the fire line in N95s, all the more reason to be buying these wines. They've got this really cool mountain collection going on right now where you can find the Neely wines and the McHenry wines and the proceeds go to the Fire Response Fund, which is going to be helping the community begin to rebuild and renew following the wildfires. So it's a really cool way to you know engage and to give back to these badass female winemakers. It has been so awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for coming by. How can folks follow along with what you guys are doing? Uh, give us, you know, any sort of social handles or websites or anything like that. You know, we update our very fancy website uh, fairly regularly. Uh, we are uh, we are going to have a GoFundMe just to help us with the rebuilding process. And uh, we love direct orders. Give us an email. All the info's on our website, McHenryVineyard.com. Wonderful. I, I, and by the way, their website is the cutest thing and it is so very Santa Cruz and I love it. I, it's, it's like it's the log cabin of websites and all the more reason to support them. Uh, and by the way, again, I cannot reiterate how beautiful their wines are. So definitely give them an order. Shaw, I've given you a nickname. Is it okay that I call you Shaw? You can call me Shaw. Yeah. No, yeah i mean as as annie said you know uh neely is direct to consumer so our website is the best place to find the wines and then i am increasingly trying to define my age group and i like to post a lot on insta as to what is going on with all of my winemaking and neely winemaking so you can find me at otavino wines and then the Neely account is at Neely Wine. Awesome. And Otovino, how do you spell that? Otovino, O-T-T-A-V-I-N-O. I used to be a flutist and piccoloist. It is the Italian way for piccolo. Oh my 
goodness. Oh, well, we got We I feel like we should play you out with a piccolo, if only. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play you out with an insta follow. How about that? You definitely don't want to hear me playing any instruments. I'm terrible. Well, it was so wonderful chatting with both you guys again. Thank you so much. Everybody, make sure, drink lots of Santa Cruz wine, give these ladies a follow, and uh, everybody stay safe and don't forget to vote. Thank you very much. <laughs> Don't forget to give us a follow as well at Krista Simmons on Instagram and at Fork in the Road Media. We'll see you guys next week.